sport in the military is something that's always very important to me. And People wanted to ask me how my, my child wants to be a catcher. What do I tell them? And I said, catch every ball. And in life, isn't that the way it is? I spent two years in the service, and I was proud to be part of it. I wore that uniform with a pride and dignity, just like I wore the Dodger uniform with great character and love. The greatest name in the history of the Cleveland Indians franchise, Mr. Bob Feller. Welcome back to the American Valor Podcast. Today we're excited to release a conversation we had with author Ann Keene in early November of 2019. Ann Keene attended the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, studying journalism. Afterwards, she worked in radio and news television, doing documentary research and production. Ann was a press secretary and speechwriter in Congress and in a presidential administration. Her book, The Cloudbuster Nine, is about the untold story of Ted Williams, and the baseball team that helped to win World War II. This book was a finalist for the 2018 Casey Award for Best Baseball Book of the Year. Ann has spoken at the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York, as well as Major League Baseball stadiums across the country, museums, libraries, Sabre, and Naval Academy chapters worldwide. Ann speaks today on the American Valor podcast about baseball, World War II, and some of the athletes who served during that time period. Ann, thank you so much for joining us on the American Valor podcast today. Thank you. It's a, it's a real honor, believe me, to, to be um, invited to uh, speak on your show. Thank you. I guess to start off, where did your passion for the military and baseball begin? Well, first of all, I, I want to say, in, in one sense, I, I'm just in awe of the military and everything they do to protect us and serve our country. Um, I'm not a veteran, but um, I am the legacy of a 1926 uh, Naval Academy graduate, my, my grandfather, James P. Rout. And um, during World War II, he ran a very small school in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, uh, and they used sports football, baseball, and so forth, wrestling, boxing, to condition cadets, uh, meaning naval cadets, before they actually got behind the controls of warplanes. So they had to take courses. They had to do a lot of physical work. Uh, it was a 30-day program. But again, my grandfather was the commander of that base. And my dad is a little boy. He was about 10 years old. Uh, he was the only child, just basically ran wild around the base in Chapel Hill. All the kids did. They had bicycles, and he was always out on the baseball field. Now, my father died four years ago in um, the, I think it was January 1st, 2014. He was almost 80. He actually died of emphysema, and he had been, though, a professional baseball player many years earlier. He had played baseball at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He was an All-American pitcher. He played for the Durham Bulls. He played for the Birmingham Barons. And, and again, he was in the Detroit Tiger system, uh, but um, something happened. He was injured. Um, we never really knew why he, he left the game, but he left in the early 1960s. And so when he passed away, I walked around the house, and I wanted to honor that that childhood memory that he had as a bat boy for this military baseball team and and I really knew very little about it other than he spoke of it he spoke of being the bat boy for Johnny Pesky and of course uh, marine pilot uh, Ted Williams and so forth but again it was um, an all-major league team essentially or most of the players um, had played for major league teams and but we really didn't know the full story so when my father died 
I went down in the basement. I started rummaging through the trunk. We all have these trunks going through the drawers and pulling out all these scrapbooks and artifacts. And I realized, wow, you know, this is not only true, this is a much bigger story than, than I ever imagined. And so when I delivered uh, the eulogy at the funeral, at the service in North Carolina, I'm from a really small town outside of Charlotte, a furniture town called Hickory, North Carolina. Uh, all these people came up after the service and we had put a table together with artifacts and baseballs and, and all these pictures. And they said, you know, we really want to know more about this cloudbuster baseball team, you know, your dad and this, this quote, Captain Marvel experience that he had with, with these, these wonderful ball players. And was Ted Williams, you know, was he really his babysitter also? Cause my dad always told that story about Johnny Pesky and Ted Williams coming over to the house to sit for the officer's kids. And um, so that's really where it was born. And, and um, he was buried. And then I, I really just dug deeply, you know, into the research, went to Chapel Hill, cracked open thousands of records. They have beautiful photographs of the base during World War II. So that's really where this journey began. It was trying to honor really the happiest moment of my father's life because he had suffered. We never really understood why he left baseball. That's a great story. <laughs> we all have them. So other than your, your father's artifacts, what else did you use for research on your book? Well, what, one thing I'm, I've done, and, and I didn't realize I was doing it, but I tried to contact as many players as I could who may have been on that team or played against the team. And just a, a very few were, were living, and um, one, one of which was the pitcher. His name was Ivan Flesser. He was 96 years old. And when I started writing the book, I thought, you know, he was an eyewitness. And I flew up to Michigan, sat down with him for an afternoon, and he told me the story. And what I find fascinating, and I'm going to talk about this more later during the interview, is the, the values, the personalities of these players who also served in the war. Now, I went up and I met with Ivan and he told me, you know, he had told very few people about pitching on this baseball team and training with Ted Williams because they were very modest about their contributions, not only during the war, but to, to these sports teams. And so Ivan laid out the story for me and I also got in touch with Eddie Robinson, who is the second oldest major league player today. He'll be 99 in a couple weeks. And he actually played for one of the, the Navy teams in Norfolk, Virginia, and they were the arch rivals to the Cloudbusters. And he told me all about it, the bus going back and forth to Chapel Hill, the teammates. And so I got a sense of what that was like from guys who were actually on these teams. And so that's really where I started. And from that, he'd say, well, you know, you might speak with Carl Erskine or you might speak with Tommy Lasorda. And it just grew from there. And uh, these are just the surviving Major League World War II veterans. And when I started this research in early 2015, there were about 65 living World War II veterans who were also Major Leaguers. And today we're down to fewer than 25. And I've tried to interview as many as possible just to get an understanding of what service meant to them, what those early days during World War II were like, playing in the major leagues. And that has become a broader, uh, more overarching story to, to all of my research. And that is really what I'm doing today. Did it ever surprise you that these baseball players were so often so willing to serve and sacrifice for their country? 
Not at all. And, and I'll tell you why. Because these men, they are our greatest generation. And what I found fascinating, and it's still happening to this day, the narrative that they share is remarkably similar. Every single one of these veterans that I've spoken with, they share values. They they they're they're they share insights. They they have lived their lives in the same manner. Um, again, they they share these beliefs uh, very similar to what Bob Feller believed. Uh, for example, most of them university universally believe that Jackie Robinson was one of the most talented all around ball players ever. I actually had the good fortune of just meeting his daughter Sharon Robinson, who was just here last week at the Austin Book Festival. But they also consider uh, Marine Ted Williams as the greatest hitter who ever lived unanimously. And, and again, I was very fortunate to get to know his daughter, Claudia, and she's just tremendous. But again, when you tick through the list of all these beliefs that they share, I'd, I'd like to touch on a few uh, all these ball players that I've spoken with, again, who served during World War II, they're absolutely fearless. And um, just, you know, Wayne Terwilliger, for example, he was a Marine who saw the, the flag raising in Iwo Jima. You know, you see something like that, and it changes your perspective on life. Um, the ball players, they expected failure, but they all kept trying. Um, another one is they take great pride in the military. In fact, every single player that I've interviewed, such as Tommy Lasorda, says, bar none, he is more proud of his military service than any contribution he ever made to sports. I mean, even a World Series title. Uh, they're very generous people with themselves. They, they all wanted to serve in the war. Dr. Bobby Brown, uh, who played for the New York Yankees, uh, explained that they rushed to serve. They wouldn't have had it any other way. They were more than glad to pause their baseball careers to risk their lives for their country because they knew they, they had to do this job. Uh, they are, again, they are all very service-oriented. They want to give back to the community. They, they're not so self-oriented. That's something I've noticed. Carl Erskine, uh, one of the famous Dodgers uh, has done a lot of work for the Special Olympics. He has a son who was born with Down syndrome. And um, I actually had a nice conversation with him, which I believe you might share a portion of this later during this interview. But where he tells me, you know, why he wants to do this work, he's just an exceptional um, individual. And then there was Chuck Stevens, who recently passed away at age 99, uh, was able to speak with him. And he did you know, decades of work uh, for the Association of Professional Ballplayers of America. Now, another thing, they live modestly for the most part. They're very humble people. Tommy Lasorda has lived in the same house for about 60 years, loved meeting him. They appreciate their freedoms. They don't take anything for granted. And uh, they're very clear about their beliefs. Um, and because I think these beliefs were forged when they were young, they lived through the Depression. Uh, they served in the war. So, again, they're very clear-eyed uh, about their beliefs. And another thing, they respect authority. Um, you know, they, some of them don't like what's going on in the country today, but they, they have a tremendous amount of respect for their leaders and, oh, the military. They are in awe of everything our military does. And, you know, again, I just can't say enough good. I, we are so fortunate and these ball players, they realize that they have lived through war and they understand the importance of respect. Because I do think respect bound our country together and helped us win the war. Another trait is they are all in good shape physically. They exercise, 
most don't drink. They never smoked. Uh, they do drink coffee, but they look 20 years younger. Val Heim, who just turned 99 this week, he's the oldest living player. He herded cattle by foot up until age 93. He lives in Superior, Nebraska. He was a cattle rancher. And um, another one, Eddie Robinson, he's the second oldest player. He is just beautiful. He is a stunning looking man. He's in great shape. He's actually working on his second book, but again, he has really healthy habits. Um, and the last thing I'll share is they never complain about their health. And when you're working with people in their late, late 90s, some of them, they don't feel well. They want to look their best, but not one has ever complained and said, I don't have time for you. I don't feel well. And the very sad thing is often we'll have a wonderful conversation and then a week later or a month later, they're, they're gone. And so that's the rush here. That's why I'm trying to record these stories. Well, it must have been an honor to be able to sit down and have conversations with some of the greatest people who ever lived and got to serve our country. It, it was. I, I, you know, I never really knew my grandfather. He passed away when I was about six or seven years old. I wish I knew him just based on what I'm learning from these, these men. But that, that is really the only tie I have to my own family is speaking with these uh, Major League World War II veterans. In all of your conversations um, with the Hall of Famers and just baseball players in general who served in World War II, um, did you ever come across, like, for example, Bob Feller said he knew that World War II was going to happen in 1939, and he knew he was going to enlist as soon as the U.S. joined. Did anyone else share a similar belief in that? Well, I think that they were different ages, but I think that they all knew. I mean, Dr. Bobby Brown said to me, we knew it was going to happen. It was just a matter of when. And absolutely, that they anticipated this. It wasn't a huge surprise. Uh, again, they were all glad to serve. And, and, you know, going into the war, they didn't know if they would live through it. They didn't know if the war would last nine months or if it would last nine years but again they were willing to serve fearless what are the takeaways from your conversations what can people learn from these men and their stories is service to others a common trait you see between them i think that's a huge part of it and and they spoke indirectly to this about not being so self-centered or self-oriented but thinking these players all seem to have this trait to think of something bigger than themselves. That's the takeaway through every single conversation I've had. And when they got out of the war, some of them got back to baseball, some of them coached, uh, but, but if they couldn't go back in, uh, to the major leagues or even play baseball again, for example, if they were injured, they became teachers. Uh, they became ministers. You know, they they did something productive for the greater good of society. And I think that's really, really important. In your book, you discuss that the Navy pre-flight schools attracted 24 major league players. Why do you think it was the Navy pre-flight schools that was attracting so many of these players? Well, that's a great question. And um, there, there are two ways I like to answer that. Uh, first of all, the, the, the Pacific was was the unknown. I mean, you know, we were attacked in the Pacific, but it was it was new territory. We didn't have the airplanes, we didn't have the pilots, and there was a real rush to to build up the the seaborne flyers, if you will. And it was dangerous work. It was truly one of the most dangerous jobs anyone could take on in in the military. And 
with a major league player, you know them just like I do. I mean, they are people who are fearless. They're strong guys. They're big guys. They're going to take hard jobs. So I think that was one attraction. But another one, and, and this is really the big differentiator, was the V5. Instead of requiring a college education, they dropped it down to high school just to get recruits. And when they did that, that was a huge game changer. It made people like Ted Williams eligible for this program. And Johnny Pesky, they, they hadn't gone to college. So it opened up a whole new, new pool of candidates for major league athletes. We understand that athletes across many sports trained at the pre-flight school in Chapel Hill. Would you please tell us about some of the other athletes who were there? I would love to. Now, this is, it's like trivia. It's getting bigger and bigger, by the way, just so you know. I'm going to tell you about some of the, the football coaches. Bear Bryant was there. In fact, he was one of the very first employees of this, this pre-flight physical uh, training program. Uh, Jim Crowley from Notre Dame, uh, one of the four horsemen. Bernie Bierman from Minnesota. Tex Oliver, Dom Farrow, split T formation. Bud Wilkinson, of course, from University of Oklahoma. Uh, let's see. Gerald Ford was there. He, he was a football coach, but he also coached boxing and swimming. Jim Tatum, uh, a real well-known name in North Carolina for football. Uh, Jules Sykes, Matty Bell, Bill Kern, uh, Johnny Vaught from Old Miss, uh, Woody Hayes, Harvey Harmon from Rutgers. Now, basketball was very interesting. You had John Wooden, um, obviously the Wizard of Westwood. Uh, he was at Chapel Hill in, in North Carolina. And Frank McGuire was another you know, huge legacy with North Carolina basketball. He was one of the pre-flight instructors. For gymnastics, uh, Newt Loken was there. He uh, was obviously one of the most revered gymnastics uh, coaches at, at Michigan. Boxing. Now, Jack Dempsey and Gene Tunney. Uh, Dempsey would tour campus to boost morale for these cadets. And again, I want to reiterate that these were really small programs. They only had five bases. They had one in, at the University of uh, Iowa, Georgia, North Carolina, and two in California uh, at the Del Monte Hotel and at St. Mary's College. And they only had about 2,000 cadets training there at once. They would cycle in every two weeks. But again, that's a really small uh, group of men. But, you know, these, these guys, Jack Dempsey, Gene Tony, they would come to motivate the cadets. Um, another one was Don George. He was the world wrestling champion. Uh, Willie Ternessa, he was a U.S. amateur golf champion. He was, uh, I believe, a cadet in Chapel Hill. And then this is interesting. Larry Snyder, he was Jesse Owens' track coach at Ohio State. He was one of the trainers, along with uh, Cornelius Warmerdam. They called him the uh, Flying Dutchman. He was um, in Chapel Hill. He was a world champion pole vaulter. So again, uh, you had you actually had circus performers too. That's what I understand to teach uh, tumbling, you know, for rolling out of airplanes and so forth. But again, they used about nine or ten different competitive sports, which went on all day, every day. Football was huge. Baseball was huge. But another prerequisite, and this is really key to these training programs, they were operating on a very lean government budget. And so the coaches that they recruited, like Bear Bryant, he not only had to have the ability to coach football, he was also a baseball coach. They had to be really versatile and to be able to coach multiple sports. Um, again, and but some of these players, it was, the way I describe it is it was like a Camelot of sports heroes. You had Olympians, world record holders, you know, rowers, wrestlers, gymnasts, 
everything you can imagine on these small bases in the middle of college campuses that look like many naval academies. We know that Ted Williams was a focal point in the book, The Cloudbuster Nine. Was that an in- intentional from the beginning, or how did that play out as you started to research this after your father passed away? Honestly, not really. Like everyone knows who Ted Williams is, and he's a, a famous, famous figure, greatly admired in baseball. My father spoke of him, but he was not in the title of the book originally. Um, my the title was long; it wasn't great. And the editor that I worked with said, "You know, I really every everyone that's you're talking to to write this book, they all want to talk about Ted Williams. I mean, he organically the story." started growing from him after I started writing the book. And so he became more of a focal point at the end, but he's still a focal point today. Everyone I speak with, they, they want to hear more about him. And, and so that's the way that it's carried, you know, he, him being on the cover of the book, again, that came, that came later. What can we learn about Ted Williams? Was his work ethic and focus something that separated him as a baseball player? And as a fighter pilot? Well, I tell you, I think that that's just the way he was from his childhood. Everything that he attempted, he wanted to do. He wanted to be the best. And I'll tell you, when he came to Chapel Hill, uh, the baseball coach actually picked him up at the train station. And uh, they talked about fishing and hunting. And, of course, Ted became a master fisherman later in life. But he had an impeccable work ethic. And... My personal theory is he had very good eyesight, and that's legendary, but I think what he really had was the mental composition and all of the physical attributes to put everything together into what I would say a superhuman performance or delivery when you can pair all of those talents together. And again, he worked hard. Um, From all the records that I found of him at the school, he swam extra laps. He ran extra miles. He just put in, uh, he missed meals to get batting practice, and he he batted until his hands cracked and they bled. Um, And he would ask the baseball coach to pitch to him until it got dark at the old Emerson Field. But again, he he put 150% effort into everything that he did at the school. And again, the records just show it. What other interesting stories came up as you were doing the research for the book? Well, I think one of my favorite interviews was with Carl Erskine, and he is just wonderful. I believe he's 93 today, and we've talked for, for quite a while, and he's just such a wonderful human being. And he told me that, um, he had not gone to Europe until I believe the 1980s. And he said he visited Point de Hoc and he said it just absolutely changed his life. He, he just thought it was breathtaking. And, um, ironically doing a little research, uh, when Reagan delivered his famous boys of Point de Hoc D-Day speech in 1984, Peggy Noonan, his speechwriter, she grabbed a line from the boys line from Roger Kahn's 1970 to baseball book about the Brooklyn Dodgers, the boys of summer. And of course, Erskine was one of the boys of summer. But at the time he delivered that speech, the boys were there. They had aged. uh, I believe there were 62 D-Day veterans and American Rangers there when Reagan delivered that speech. And they were looking over the cliffs that they had scaled 40 years earlier. And I just reread that speech, and I want to read one paragraph 
that uh, to me it really speaks to everything that these players have told me, everything people, you know, Ted Williams represents. And it said, 40 summers have passed since the battle that you fought here. You were young the day you took those, these cliffs. Some of you were hardly more than boys with the deepest joys of life before you, yet you risked everything here. Why? Why did you do it? What impelled you to put aside the instinct for self-preservation and risk your lives to take these cliffs? What inspired all the men of the armies? So the favorite line from the speech, it describes the, the World War II players and their values. And Reagan said, 40 summers have passed since the battle that you fought here. You were young the day you took these cliffs. Some of you were hardly more than boys with the deepest joys of life before you. Yet you risked everything here. Why? Why did you do it? What impelled you to put aside the instinct for self-preservation and risk your lives to take these cliffs? What inspired all the men of the armies that met here? We look at you, and somehow we know the answer. It was faith and belief. It was loyalty and love. To me, that's everything. They say this over and over. Faith, loyalty, beloved, uh, love clear convictions and beliefs. That's what I'm learning from all of these players. And that's the example that Ted Williams set. What other characteristics would you like to speak about? Well, again, I think it all boils down to faith and believing in something bigger than yourself. But loyalty is huge. And and one, I had the opportunity to meet Tommy Lasorda this year. And, and there's a funny story here that, that speaks to this trait. Um, I got in touch with him through his assistant, Felipe, and um, he said, sure, you know, you can meet us at Starbucks. And so I did. They come in and Tommy was very cordial, polite. And we sat down and we talked about loyalty. And he said he has really been with the Dodgers for about 70 years. And he said over and over, you know, there were many times that I could leave, but, but my wife in particular always thought that I belong with the Dodgers. And he said to me, I, I want you to meet my wife. Uh, she's right down the road. If you want to get in the car with me, we'll, we'll go down there and we'll meet her. But she'll tell you about this. And so we did. And here I was, a, a total stranger. I get in the back of, of Tommy's Escalade, and it, it's piled with, you know, Dodgers, banners, and cups, and so forth. But he trusted me, and he and Felipe drove me over there. But I sat down, and I met with Joe, and she said to me, you know, Tommy is all about loyalty. And he is, he's a strong personality, colorful, but he is just 100% Tommy Lasorda, and he is in awe of the military. And I'll tell you, if he was able, if he was younger, I know he would go on the road and do a tour with the military. And he said to me, just with clear conviction over and over, he said, you know, my two years in the Army were two of the best years of my life. And when you are wearing that American military uniform, you know you are fighting for the very best country in the war in the world. And he said, it's very similar to wear the Dodgers uniform. I mean, you know what you stand for. And again, he is tried and true. He uh, is super respectful of the military in, in every regard. Wow. Yeah, we were honored to have him on the show a while ago. And he's just incredible. So genuine and so patriotic and happy to do anything he can for his country. In conclusion, what is your takeaway from the great research that you've done um, in this area of baseball and the military? What advice can people take away from these stories? Well, it's funny because I just found a transcript from a Bob Feller interview that he did with our museum 
we have the, the National Museum of the Pacific War in Fredericksburg, Texas. And he did an interview in November of 2009. And they asked him that question, you know, what, what kind of advice do you have for future generations? And they said, you're, you're a legend. And, and just growing up, what, what, what kind of advice do you have for these kids? And first off, you know, he said he was very good friends with, uh, he was friends with Reagan. Uh, he knew Bull Halsey. He greatly admired Harry Truman. He didn't know him, but he also knew Nixon and he knew Johnson. And he said, you know, my one piece of advice to you, you know, and, and what I try to do every day, this is what he said. He tried to be a good American. And he said that he felt like that was much more important than any contribution he made to baseball. He was proud of his military service, like these veterans that I'm interviewing. But again, he tried to be a good American, made a conscious effort. And he said, my one piece of advice is read our Constitution and run your lives according to the Constitution. He felt like the Constitution and the Gettysburg Address were two of the best uh, documents ever written. But again, at the very end of the interview, he said, read the Constitution and abide by it. And then he said, thank you very much. I'm going to hang up. And he did. But again, that's, that was his advice. But I think going back, I have a daughter in high school. And if I was really to give advice, I, I think technology is hard. I think it takes this human aspect of communicating with people, uh, being close with friends, feeling, you know, like you're in touch with others. I think that's really tough. But at the end of the day, I think that life is hard. You know, my father, he had his heart broken when he was injured in baseball. Uh, but again, I do think that you, you have to keep trying and we are going to fail. Uh, that's one thing that they taught these, these pilots during during the war you know you expect failure you know you're going to get shot down you're going to get injured but every day get up you know you're going to fail and just try to think of ways to succeed um i think respect i think that that in a sense society we are lacking in respect and and uh there was one player uh, bob miller he was one of the whiz kids and he talked about that and he said, I know we live in, in this tough, crazy world, but I, I think that we should all try to respect each other. I mean, you may not believe in, in what we're re reading or what we're seeing, but again, just, just respect one another. And I think that's a two-way street. Um, I think working is important. These kids, uh, you know, getting jobs at a young, early age is important. A lot of these players that I've interviewed, you know, now they're in their 90s, but they all had jobs as kids. Tommy Lasorda was selling newspapers on a street corner when Pearl Harbor was bombed. Eddie Robinson picked cotton as a child before school uh, just to help support his family. So they have this work ethic uh, as children. Um what else? I mean, I think that what we see out in the media, these pictures, uh, that's hard. And I really envy the way these ball players grew up. It was simple times. Uh, one of the oldest players, Val Heim, that I interviewed, told me that when he was 14, 15 years old, uh, his father was a train conductor up in the upper Michigan. And he would um, get a ticket for Val and a friend of his who played on the baseball team with him. They'd get on the train. They'd go down to Wrigley Field to watch a game in Chicago. That's a 400-mile trip. They'd go to the game. They'd tour the city. They'd eat hot dogs. They would stay late for the game. They'd get the autographs from players. And then they'd get back on the train, and they would be home later that night. And he said, you know, he's 99 years old. He will never forget that experience. But to me, that's really living. 
you know, interacting, traveling, going to games, uh, experiencing life. And I guess the last thing is just having faith. I mean, having faith in something greater than yourself, just getting up every day and not making it all about yourself, but to trying to look for ways to give back. I think that's that's hugely important, and that's what these guys all did. They paused their baseball careers. Of course, there was very little money back in the day, but again, serving something greater uh, than yourself, I, I think, is really the the last uh, piece of advice that that I would give. It has been a great honor to have you on the American Valor podcast today, and we really appreciate you sharing stories about these baseball players who served and lessons that people today can learn. From their lives and hopefully impl- implement um, some of those values and ideas um, to help uh, build strong communities. Well, I'm honored. I'm, I'm just a messenger. I mean, again, I don't really feel worthy because I didn't serve in the military, but what I do is we are recording these memories. Um, and again, I know you're going to integrate uh, a few of these into this interview, which I think is going to make it a lot better than just talking to me. So again, it was an honor. And um, I look forward to hearing the broadcast, and um, I really appreciate your time. We would like to add a special limerick that Anne shared with us from her conversation with Mr. Carl Erskine. Mr. Erskine was a Major League Baseball player in the 1940s and 1950s, and he served in the United States Navy during World War II. When Mr. Erskine later visited Point Duhok, he viewed the craters and rows of white crosses and he wrote this special limerick about the feeling that he had, um, that he experienced there at Point Duhok. And we'd like to share that with you now. Can we total the debt that we owe to so many whom we'll never know? Each life sacrificed in a way was like Christ. We are free because they took the blow. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the American Valor Podcast, produced with support from an Angels Touch publishing company, the publisher of Walk of Heroes, Profiles of Valor. This limited edition book illustrates the 37 National Baseball Hall of Famers who served in the United States military during World War II, including Ted Williams and Bob Feller. These 37 Hall of Famers are part of a group of over 500 Major League Baseball players who served in the military of the United States during World War II. If you'd like to learn more about the stories of these 37 National Baseball Hall of Famers, including Ted Williams, who Ann Keene spoke about today, simply go to activevalorward.org and visit shop to order your limited edition book, or follow the support the show link in the notes to this podcast. Our next interview will feature sports journalist, Ms. Lindsay Berra, the granddaughter of National Baseball Hall of Famer and World War II veteran Yogi Berra. We hope you'll join us. You can follow the Bob Feller Foundation on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Active Valor Award. Colin and I are signing off on the American Valor Podcast. Thank you for listening.